Hey guys, this is Coach Keita Bussey with 180 Firearms Training, Mike Seifert and Jim Cusack. Today we are going to talk about adaptive shooting. Welcome to the 180 Firearms Training Podcast. So Jim, welcome yes. to the podcast. Why Thanks don't you go ahead me. and introduce yourself? Uh, well, it's good to see you guys. Uh, my name is Jim Kuzak, and currently I am a brand ambassador for Glock as well as uh, an adaptive shooter. Uh, currently shooting in USPSA and IDPA. Uh, I am a retired, medically retired police officer. I had 20 years on the job until I was uh, shot in the line of duty, which left right. me paralyzed from the waist down. So I'm in a wheelchair. All right. So you took the Smart Move class in Florida a couple of years ago. You want to yeah. tell us a little bit about that, how that went? So I had met Keita before, I think about two or three times. She was already the coach for uh, Joe Draghi and Karina Draghi down here at Florida, and they were shooting USPSA. And uh, I says, hey, I'd like to really get to go to one of Keita's classes. And unfortunately, she was having one here at uh, the OK Corral. So I said, you know what? I got to see how I can learn to move a little better in the wheelchair. And I'll tell you what, once I spent that day with you there, I, uh, I didn't realize all the different things that even somebody not having any experience in the chair being from yourself to me being in the chair and seeing everything you saw right off the get go that I would have never even thought to do to gain those times. So the interesting thing is I come from a nursing background, so I would teach people how to use a wheelchair for the first time after an injury. And I understand the body mechanics and things like that and how your body reacts to injuries. Like if you have spasms in your legs and things mm -hmm. like that, that can affect your shooting. So coming from that background, I think I can see things that other coaches might not pick up on just because they haven't been around people in wheelchairs extensively sure. the way that yeah. I have. Do, you, do you remember that at double ego uh when you when you were trying to teach me that technique and then you were like put your shoulders up and then you're like oh you can't do that technique <laughs> yeah. yeah so Kita, yeah Kita, i realized Kita, you had look a at your shoulder. body and tell you like well the way your shoulder is positioned inside your shoulder it's all messed up and there's no way you're gonna be able to do that so we could do a different technique so she's good that way too oh yeah yeah, you yeah. can't hide your injuries from me. <laughs> no. So, Jim, so, Jim, yeah. um, how long ago um, were you injured in the line of duty? Were you shooting USPSA and IDPA before that happened? And then this then you had to kind of get used to the chair. Or is it something that you came into when you um, started in the wheelchair and then you found USPSA? Uh, I had shot IPSC type around the area of Western Pennsylvania and and it was with USPSA, the guys that were running matches around the area. And I shot it from a standpoint of proficiency as law enforcement <clears throat> officer. So I shot with my duty gear. My cousin and I, my cousin's a police officer as well, and he is now the commander of a SWAT team. So we wanted to be as proficient as we could. So that's where we started getting into that game, I guess you could say. I didn't go back to it until probably about two to three years after I was shot. And that was, I was shot April 4th, 2011. So it's been a little bit of time, but that's where I started now looking at it from a competitive standpoint and enjoying shooting again, which I didn't know if I was going to ever be able to go back to. So that's why the, the first two or three years was more or less my rehab time, but then it was more of a time to get over the 
lasting effects of the mental aspect of getting shot and learning how to be paralyzed in a wheelchair to then get into the shooting sports again, which I had been involved in shooting my entire life since I was eight years old. Right. So what things did you pick up that day that we worked together that you hadn't thought of before? Mostly what we got to learn or what you put into my head was uh, consolidating shooting positions for me, um, reloading techniques for me, and basically positioning myself with the chair as, as I would ar- arrive at an array, position the chair for the next array. Instead of thinking just where I have to be to shoot this array, I have to be thinking one ahead so that I don't have to turn the chair all the way from the right to the left to move. Set so, up to get out. Yes. So, so at that time, at that time, your wheelchair was set up where you had to move it using two hands, which yeah. means you had to holster the gun each time you had to move the chair and then draw the gun again for each position. Yes. So what did we do to make that faster using that chair? Using that chair was starting off was the reload. So instead of making a static reload, so I'd finish it not moving the chair, I would drop the magazine, reload, then reholster. So what we did with you was instead of doing that, let's move as much as we can, drop the magazine, holster, so that the next movement as I come into the next array was magazine into the firearm on target and firing. And the other thing I had you do was hold, when you grab your next magazine, hold it between your fingers like attack reload. That's right. That makes your fingers available to move the chair with the magazine in hand, ready to go when you arrive. So you're not going through the whole step of drawing the magazine out of the pouch. Also, when you get there, it's already in your hand, ready to go. Yes, that's the one thing I forgot about the time with that. Having that mag in my hand, I've I've adopted that when I had the manual chair. A lot of times I'd have to kind of gauge where and if that was going to be the proper move only because it depends on what type of ground I'm on, mm-hmm. how wet my hand is going to be, how dirt filled my hand is going to be. And that's the other issue with me. When I had to reholster and grab the gun, each time I'm moving, I'm picking more stuff up. When we were shooting in Florida, it's a lot of sand, but when you get any type of rain, it turns into sandy mud uh, paste and whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. it's in your hand and everything else. Good that I shoot a Glock that doesn't usually bother anything with it. Right. Uh, but we know with the high end firearms, everyone else shoots, that's not going to probably work as much, but for me, it does work. I got a question so, for you. So like, I, I don't want to sound ignorant. Um, I just don't, I just don't know. Is there, is there like rules uh, for the chair for like where your holster could be for like the differences between USPSA, IDPA? Like, is there certain things that you have to abide by? Like, I, I don't even know if I've ever seen there. There are some vague or ambiguous rules. What started with USPSA is I really had no question or issues. Most of the Uh, match directors that I've shot have either known or heard of me and have an idea where I am. I like to be within the spirit of the game as much as I can be with my feet. And we'll talk about the red shoes and how that kind of comes into play. Uh, I don't just go flying over a fault line 
to just get a better position. I go over a fault line because I can't lean out as far as some people standing on your legs and lean around a corner. So I have to have the chair at most point, maybe one wheel or at least the front wheels over the fault line. And then I have enough core strength where I can do that lean. Uh, what I've learned now with the new chair is I can lean a little bit further depending on the position of where the chair is. Holsters, they allow for the holster to be positioned anywhere. I haven't had any issues with that. Certain times I had shot with the holster on my belt. Most of the time I shoot right now is a mount that's made by contact that mounts to the bar of my chair that's right next to my right knee. That's what I was wondering about. I was wondering about more like equipment positions, like, you know, your mags, like, do they have to come from your belt still or can you put them on the chair? You know, stuff like that. Um, none of the associations, uh, IDPA or USPSA have really questioned me too bad on that. Uh, my mags, I still keep on my belt. It's for me that having them on the belt is something I've trained since I've been in law enforcement. So I, my immediate hand placement and movement from my left to grab a magazine is second nature to me. So keeping them on the belt has helped me with that as well. Uh, other than that, the, uh, the shoes. So I always used to laugh at the people. They're like, well, how do you do deal with the fault lines and everything? I said, well, they're a pain in my ass. One, because I have to get over them in my chair. And two, they're always where I don't want them to be. I said, and if it was for me, you guys have all these Solomons and you got to worry about your foot placement. I said, yeah, we'll see one of these days. So the people I shoot with on a regular basis took that as, oh, this is going to be a good joke. So I shot the one match we had and they said, hey, we got something for you. Everybody's standing around. I'm like, this does not feel good. Come over with a shoe box for me and I open it up and it is a bright red pair of Solomons. I said, oh, okay, funny guys. So I wear them everywhere I go. So there are absolutely no foot faults. You can see where my feet are and it's the brightest thing on me. So, but to answer the question, I do my best at keeping either my feet over inside the fault lines or only like one wheel or the half the side of the chair off that side. So only, yeah. only in USBSA, man, you know, no mercy for anybody. <laughs> Not at all. So, so Jim, how much time on average after consolidating positions, setting up to get out, switching to the 50, 50 reload, all the things we worked on about how much time did you take off your stages? With the manual chair? Yes. We had, in, I mean, literally that first day after you and I tried about four or five times running a stage, we had it down until I dropped 11 seconds. And then you shot seconds. a match. 11 seconds on a how long of a stage? So like 11 about out of 30? 24 rounds. Yeah. That's, that's a lot of time. Yeah, because I was averaging, you know, people were running through those. Let's say if it was a long field course, you know, they might run a 17, maybe an average guy shooting a 20. Well, that would take me close to 50 seconds to a minute. So now dropping that much time, I've noticed now in the matches that, well, even before that, I'm jumping up 15, 20 spots to shooters that are able-bodied. So that that was that's got to feel awesome. Yeah, and that's that's really my goal and my passion in working with adaptive shooters is Mm -hmm. to get rid of that margin because it doesn't need to be there. You guys are so adaptive and you do this in your everyday life, things that we take for granted that you have to come up with some other way of doing things, but you can still do it just as well as if not better than the rest of us, which means 
that margin doesn't need to be there. Mm-hmm. Have you ever have you ever competed against another person in a wheelchair or another person like that? That's I mean, that's got to be great competition for you. You're like, finally, I have somebody that I can try to we, dominate. We finally have. And what really gave me the idea to get back into this the way I did was Trevor Backer. If you haven't heard of Trevor, Trevor, initially where I found him, shot for Smith & Wesson as a wheelchair shooter. And he had been an Army pilot for the Blackhawks, and that's how he got injured in a crash. So that gave me the idea. I'm like, you know what? I've carried Glock my entire life. Let's see what we can get accomplished here. And kind of like the rest was history. So then I finally got to shoot against Trevor. He came up with an idea, what he called the Adaptive Defensive Shooting Summit, that he put together with help from Ruger, who he now shoots for, and all the people that he knew in the shooting community. So now we've got three years in the past already for the Adaptive uh, Shooting Summit, where uh, we had instructors teaching people in wheelchairs that had never shot from their wheelchairs or wanted to. And we shot IDPA style courses up at the Sig Sauer Academy. So yeah, that was the first time that seeing other guys shooting in wheelchairs and, and how much fun they were having. And I knew how much fun I'd been having, but so yeah, it, it was fun finally shooting with people where I'm like, okay, Hey, I thought I was a little bit better than this. And now I need to up that game a little more. It's awesome. So tell us about the new chair. I'm so excited about this. So the new chair, this also came about as a result of Trevor Backham. Shooting in Sig Sauer is in Epping, New Hampshire. Where the iBot is made is Manchester, New Hampshire, which is barely an hour away. They made what's called the iBot out of Mobius Mobility. And the inventor of the Segway is the inventor of this. Oh, that's so so cool. Yeah. So the wheelchair operates off of gyroscopic ability. So when it balances and when I go in four-wheel drive and all that stuff, that's what it does. All I got to do is move the joystick and it can do just about anything else. I can raise my height from about three feet to five feet tall in that mode. And then it has a balance mode where it literally stands up on just two wheels where I'm back to six foot tall. So does that that allow you to shoot through ports where before you weren't able to? Yes, yeah, we gotta we gotta cut in a, a picture of this wheelchair or something, Jim. You gotta have you gotta get a we'll big video or something. So we sure. can do I'm gonna that I'm gonna cool. send it to Kita and she'll be able to add it in on the the on that there. I don't even know how to do that on Zoom right now, but yeah. it, it, all you gotta do is punch it in. I bought I B O T and Mobius Mobility, and uh, there's videos everywhere for them. So where, where is this summit held every year and when is it? I mean, that's something that we could promote on here also is that, you know, sure. for people that are not sure how to get into this or, or where, I mean, if you're running something, that sounds great. Maybe they don't, they just don't they know. They can either that. just go on to Facebook and type in ADSS and that's the Adaptive Defensive Shooting Summit. Uh, it's been at and probably will be at again, the Six Hour Academy. That uh, just seems to be where Trevor got the first place to accept it and we had the indoor ranges and it's usually been around September or October of every year. I don't think he has the dates yet set for this year for 2022, but uh, unfortunately I missed uh, the 2021 for medical reasons, but that's the fun of being in a wheelchair. But the, the I bought, the great thing about that is being a power chair. Now my movement, I made sure that the joystick was on the left so that I would have control of my firearm on the right. And moving that fast 
I've literally already now dropped 30 seconds off my times. That's awesome. That is awesome. Yeah. So big, go ahead, Kita. Do you ever operate the joystick with a mag in hand ready for your reload? See? That's common. <laughs> Putting it all together is going to be what uh, is going to take me my time because I, I just got the iBot in June. I didn't really start shooting with it until October. So I've only got a couple matches under my belt, but I do some of our local, you know, four stage matches as much as I can to get to the point where, okay, you know, you're going to be reloading at the next stage and you're going to have to move as well. So have the mag in hand. I don't have that yet. I'm getting it in my mental preparation because again, with not holstering, I have to watch where I'm turning the chair in going to the next uh, array. I've already found myself where I have to like entering a hallway when sometimes when we'll do, let's say uh, a field course that has a hallway that you have to either enter or start in backing out is slower than turning around and coming out. Mm -hmm. So that's where I have to watch the positioning. And just as on the cover of your book with putting the firearm over, either over your shoulder or pointed down range, I just keep it beside the chair pointed backwards as I'm going up range. And that has worked well. Again, it's a mental thing to put all these things into what I gotta do for, yeah, into what I got to do on the stage as well as the stage plan. So like we discussed before, your stage plan is going to be where is your movement flow <coughs> taking you from you know left to right or right to left. Well, with me, it's going to be where is the best position for this chair to make um, one straight movement, not doing a lot of turning and a lot of uh, backing up because those are the slow points. Backing up and turning are my two slow points I found with the chair. So mm -hmm. I'm trying to make it so that uh, either way I shoot, the chair is just going left to right, right to left, instead of trying to go forward and backwards. So when the consolidation of those uh, positions is where that's going to come into play. And we did test this and found that actually turning the chair all the way around and moving forward is faster than backing up. Yes. In most situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You got to bump the speed up on the reverse, you know? You so, yeah. <laughs> so with the old chair, mm -hmm. you would, in order to sort of shoot on the move or coast, you would kind of have to figure out, okay, if I push the wheels this hard, I should land about here facing this position. That's where it will coast to yes. so that you can kind of shoot on the move a little bit. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and now with this chair, you can just be running the joystick. You shoot on the move strong hand only at all while operating it. I have started to. Uh, the difference with that is I've been shooting carry optics. So trying to find the dot has been a lot harder with just a strong hand. But it's been working. So even if I don't have the dot, as long as I know I have my generalized, you know, eyes on the target, fire on toward that target, I'm getting some of the shots where it's just that hand-eye coordination. So it's the intuitive shooting of knowing your firearm and everything that way. But even with that, when I have the speed up on the iBot, I know that when I let go of the joystick, I've got probably about a two-foot forward motion yet. So I can still be indexed on a target going towards it and let go of the joystick and still be moving and engaging already is where I know my stop point will be. So do you group targets differently? Because if you're shooting on the move, 
you have to be basically shooting strong hand only for the most part. Yes. So do you group the targets where let's say there's an array with a couple of close targets and maybe a far target, take that far target from somewhere else and group it that way so that you can shoot the closer ones on the move? Yes, what I'll do is <clears throat> if I'm not forced into a position, you know what I mean? If they're not forcing anybody into a position, whether you or me, what I can do is, is I'll like to see where my start point is, if I can get the first array and maybe let's go to the far right of a course and maybe I can get that far target that I will not have to go into a port or into an open area where there's a forward fault line so that when I'm moving and I come to that array again, I'm already shooting knowing I had that target in the far corner. I've already got it. So now I've, instead of having four in that array, I may have only three where then I can already be in the position to, uh, let's say, go into it, shoot two targets, and then before I'm even done, I'm already moving towards the next array. So what I've found so far is, as long as I'm not forced into it, it's benefiting. But if it's a forced, then there's no reason to shoot it at, let's say, 20 yards where I can shoot it at 10. Yeah. So for most people, <clears throat> excuse me, for most people, we don't want to shoot a whole bunch of targets from one spot because that's a time sink. Yes. But for you, that can actually be beneficial, shooting as many targets from one spot as you possibly can. And we talked about shooting from a lean, strong hand only so that you can get more targets without having to move the chair. You want to talk about that a little? Yes. And with the new chair, it's been a lot better because it is more stable. So if I lean all the way out with just my support hand. Your leans look way better. Yeah, I could literally grab the side of this chair and lean so far out and the chair is not going to fall over. Whereas my manual chair, I've only got a certain point that I can go over that it will go over. But with this... I can really get into those and come around. And I just did it with transitioning to my, my support hand because otherwise I was literally going to have to turn the chair perpendicular just to get between the two openings of the wall to then reach around a target that was literally up against the wall. So in this case, I just transferred from my right hand, took my hand off the joystick to the left hand, reached around the wall, got my hits, came back out and was moving. All in just one fluid motion. Yeah, so adding, adding those leans and switching to strong hand or weak hand makes more targets available to you without having to move the chair. Yes. Yes. And that's where, like I said, just now in the few months that I've been using the iBot, the difference is from a stage plan from the other chair. So all those new variables have now come into, and that's what I'm pushing for uh, in, in for this year, is to be using the iBot at every match, everything I can do, even in my practice matches, so that that's where it's second nature. Do you guys, uh, do you guys like reach out to each other and talk about different ways that you found to use the chair effectively? Like, um, you know, do you reach out to, I, I forgot what his name was, with the ADSS. Um, Trevor Blackham? Yeah, like, um, like, like, hey, you know, I was shooting a match today and this happened. And, you know, if you do this with the chair, this works a lot better. Do you guys like help each other out that way? Trying to like do testing. Have, honestly, I haven't as much and I would like to with Trevor. 
Uh, he's in Texas. Not that if you know Zoom doesn't work or fun doesn't work. Uh, I've seen him shoot more three guns and the Bianchi cup, whereas I've been shooting a lot of heavy movement, you know, with the USPSA and the IDPA. And honestly, I haven't seen too many other people in the wheelchair going out and doing that, which upsets me because if I can, then so can anybody else mm-hmm. that may be in a wheelchair or operating with, you know, loss of limb or something to that degree, because you just have to try it. And in doing that with the ADSS, uh, we've gotten so many people in there now that they're like, I can do this. Even though we only set it up so that it's an IDPA stage that isn't movement based. That's where I think I'm different right now is I'm doing a lot of the, uh, you know, every, we know USPSA is time and accuracy as well as IDPA, same thing, time and accuracy. So I've gotten my accuracy to on point where I'm comfortable with that. Now it's accuracy with movement mm-hmm. and getting that because being in, you know, carry optics is minor. So my hits count a lot more oh, yeah. than, you know, me shooting limited or anything to that degree. Yeah. Now, the thing I thought was cool is when we worked together that one day, it was just one day. So you hadn't perfected these techniques yet. They had just been introduced to you. Yes. And you weren't doing them all, all the time. It was just, oh, I'm going to focus on getting this one thing right. And if everything else falls apart, that's fine. Now I'm going to focus on this other thing. Mm-hmm. And you still took off 11 seconds from your stage yeah. without doing it the right way every time. Because yeah. it had only been one day. You had hours. It's not going to be perfect. Yeah. And the, the neatest thing to see was the guys that I commonly shoot with, because I'll shoot, you know, two or three days a week with, you know, whatever matches I can. The guys were like, what are you doing different? Cause your, your times have already changed and you're shooting much better with where I was with the chair. And now they're even seeing how much I've gained with the eyeball. And they're just like, people just look at me like, ah, uh, you're just, it's neat. It's finally neat to see somebody seeing my improvement other than myself. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about your sponsors. That's another thing I've been so fortunate and great. Trust me, if I didn't have the support one of Glock, I wouldn't be doing any of this. I just don't make the money that we all have a problem with getting into our loves of passion and sport. Of course, mine have to be expensive, cars and guns. So (laughs) we'll go with both. But uh, Glock is the one that has taken care of me for the longest. I've had, I carried a Glock on duty pretty much my entire career. So knowing that that's what I basically let my life be protected by and protecting everybody else, I'm like, this is who I want to shoot with. And in doing so, I've met so many other people. I got to meet you. And then, of course, got to meet Brian Connolly from Hunter's HD Gold. You know, not going to just say this because he's supporting me. Let me tell you about those glasses. It's amazing the differences of how shooting with a glass is the change while you're shooting to the sun, to the overcast, to your dot. It's just amazing. And I I can't thank Brian enough. So Brian helped me out with a lot of that stuff, as well as uh, one of the first shots I did was on the West Coast 
for the Steel, West Coast Steel Challenge back in 2017. And there I met up with uh, Len from Katanica. And Katanica is a, a clothing, uh, I don't want to call it tactical because it's not for that. It's basically American made clothing, pants, shirts, backpacks for hardcore shooters, hiking and everything. So he takes care of me getting me shorts, getting me shirts, all that stuff. And that's just from a guy that I met once. Wow. Len takes care of me. We keep in touch throughout the years. I had left my first year. I didn't know how much ammo I could take on planes. And now I'm in California and dealing with guns. So I had left like 500 bullets with Len. I'm like, Len, I don't know what to do with this. And this is what I had in shot. So the inexperience got me to meet him. So then pushing him, pushing me throughout this whole you know, what I want to say, my recent shooting career. Um, let's see, who else? Um, why does this always do this to me? Have you ever met <laughs> on the block? Never remember, right? Like Ashley and Shane and all those guys? What's that? I didn't miss that, Mike. I said, have you met like Ashley and Shane and all the other guys on the Glock team? Oh, yeah. And you know what? I basically thank Michelle the most because I happened to meet Michelle because her family had prior lived and been in Western Pennsylvania, her father was a police officer in a, in a department close to where I worked. So in talking with her and getting an idea of like, hey, what do I got to do to get into this uh, with the world of Glock and everything? And she gave me some ideas. She's like, you know, just keep shooting, put your name out there, make sure people see you and everything like that. And uh, yeah, and I think it was right after right just when Ashley got picked up by Glock where they uh, said, hey, you know, uh, we'd like to, can we offer you this opportunity? And I said, can you? I said, I will gladly jump on this opportunity and represent you the best I can from what I do and what you've done for me and my, my police career and going forward with this. Uh, who else do I got to help me out all the time? I mean, between family and everybody that supported me doing this, I, I couldn't do it. I mean, I just, just, there's just no way. And it's only because of my sponsors, like, you know, Katanica, Glock, and uh, all these guys. And I know I'm going to forget so many just because you asked. So I'm going to have to keep thinking about it. Well, if you think of any, just chime yeah. in. I know, I know that was, that was probably <clears> the last <throat> day of my shooting career since I started was when I got to actually officially be sponsored by DaVinci. Yeah. yeah, like, you know, it's kind of what I've been working for everybody that starts shooting, you know, they all see the guys with the shirts and they want to be sponsored. And yeah, and yeah. So I thought that was that was probably one of the coolest days. So, yeah, uh, it's I've been just so fortunate with, you know, the people that want to support me and do these kind of things that I'm just thankful. And most of it comes from me meeting people in the USPSA and IDPA. I've not had difficulties anywhere shooting. Difficulties in respect to, I've already got difficulties on getting around, but when it comes to them helping me, nothing, no problems whatsoever. Everybody's been more than uh, helpful in doing so. Now, another challenge most people have um, being in a wheelchair, if you've been paralyzed, you know, most people don't know this, but you have these involuntary leg spasms. Not everybody has them, but most people who have been paralyzed do have these leg spasms where your legs just kind of start jumping around all by themselves. Yep. So for the rest of us shooters, 
will have something like a strong wind that's sort of blowing your gun around, or if you're shooting on the move and kind of bouncing around a little bit, basically what you're doing is when your sights cross over the spot you want to hit on the target, you engage it. But if you're on a really tough target, that's not gonna work. You're just gonna have to kind of sit and wait until it stops. You wanna talk about that? Yes, most of my spasms right now are uh, <clears throat> controlled by medication. So I take baclofen and Lyrica and those would kind of keep them at bay. Now, after I've been sitting for a while, mostly, you know, once I get to about half a day after lunch, uh, you're not getting a lot of uh, circulation to your legs and uh, not a lot of movement. Now I have movement that I can do. I can move my right leg, but I can't really feel anything on it. Can't move my left leg, but I can feel um, everything on it as in hypersensitivity. So that's the other things. So sometimes it'll just start what they call clonus, which is this spasming of uh, the muscles because involuntarily, my muscles aren't reaching the, the brain. So the brain's telling them to do something, it doesn't get to them because I'm paralyzed and the legs wanna do something, it doesn't get to the brain. So it actually looks like I'm working uh, double bass drums on a, on a drum kit. My legs will just start tapping, knees up and down. So imagine you sitting there like at a desk and tapping your legs and knees up and down while you're holding forward, trying to you know, keep that front sight or that dot still. Yeah, that happens a lot. Usually so, it probably happens on like a no-shoot target, right? Absolutely. <laughs> That's how it works. So, just remember when we were kids and it says, follow, follow the bouncing ball on the sentence and it goes like that. Well, then that's what you're going to do with the dot. Okay, there's cardboard. Pull the trigger. You know, it's, it's something I just, I've had to work around. Lately, it hasn't been much of a problem. I think that maybe because it is the iBot and I'm not um, getting bounced around as much as I used to in the other chair. But inevitably, it, it comes when I don't need it to. Now, with the iBot, you can recline the chair, correct? Yeah, I can tilt it back a little bit better, which takes a little bit more of that uh, the pressure of sitting all day. Uh, so letting... you can elevate your legs? Mm, not the not legs really. so much, but a, a tilt gives me a little bit of pressure relief in doing okay. that. Yeah, Yeah. so, so when, when you have the clonus, basically your muscles are contracting, trying to pump that blood back up to your heart and your head and get it to stop pulling so much in your legs. Yeah. But if you can tilt the chair back and take get some relief from that, that can help minimize it a little bit. Yeah, and it has. And that's the good thing about this iBot. I'm learning so much more the more I use it. Uh, I don't think a lot of people that have been fortunate enough to get into an iBot uh, use it the way I do. I'm probably a little rougher on it. Uh, but let here we go back to sponsors. I got to give it to this. American Mobility Project is the uh, foundation that gifted me the chair. And I only got on their radar because of Trevor Backham, who was gifted his chair, I think either by American Mobility Project or the VA, either one. But that's how he met them. And American Mobility Projects goes out to try and literally help those in need, first responders, military, and right now we got a bunch of even younger kids that need this type of uh, mobility device because it's not cheap. The iBots now in the second generation are probably right around $35,000. Wow. 
So the chair is, you know, is as, as expensive as a car. So I am beyond humbled and grateful that I've had the ability to get the, the iBot. Right now, I think we're probably only about 75 to 80 iBot second generation chairs in the world. Wow. And, Mobi and Mobius is producing them as fast as they can to get them to people, obviously, when the funds were there. So the foundations, though, have been doing a great job of getting us in these chairs. Yeah, if, if they ever do a third generation, it would be really awesome if they included a reclining legs elevated position yeah, for when you're off in between stages. Sure. And that would be, I mean, the difference with the iBot compared to, let's say, uh, the power chairs that, you know, quadriplegics and stuff may use or even some paras. Uh, the iBot, like I said, is based off all that gyroscopic usages of like the Segway. So the base is where all the weight is and does different things. Uh, you can have just about any type of seating solution above that base. So that's the good thing. So I think in reiterations that they're going to make with this, they'll probably have that added on to it because I think as they, they learn who they're putting in the chairs, because also I forgot to mention this chair climbs stairs. That's so cool. I've yeah. seen videos of that. Yeah. So it'll climb stairs, which, you know, the world isn't completely accessible. So, right. you know, if you need to, this will do it and it'll take you up the stairs. What does that do? It has like the, the triangle wheel on it that does that. And then you kind of goes one at a time on the way up. Well, it doesn't have triangles. What it does is it has, let's say the base has on either side, four wheels, but both those wheels are on a single pivot point. And it, so that can motion come like it's wheel front, wheel back, center point, and it does this. So when I back up to stairs, it literally, when I lean back, will rotate that front wheel all the way up onto the step and then rotate it again up onto the next step and That's rotate awesome. up on the next step. So, so you yeah. can actually shoot the positions that have the stairs um, in a stage. If, yeah but the, here's the problem that it's not going to be time conducive right that's the problem you get to run it up takes the steps. a long time for me i have to stop put it in the mode to get up the steps it's a cool <clears throat> thing to have for the usage of the chair and right. not so much for shooting gotcha yeah but uh yeah and i adapted the mount for my chair already uh they have uh pads to hold your knees in that mount on the chair so I just took one of those apart on the right side and where it mounts on the chair, I moved it forward. And the mount that CompTAC uses for the holster literally had the same distance of hole placement for the screws for the clamps for my other chair. So I just oh, that's took crazy. Two, screw, two screws in there and boom, the holster's perfect. Yeah. So with your old chair, when there was a port, mm -hmm. there was no way for you to get up and see through it and shoot through it. So you had to move your chair to the side of the wall to even be able to see the targets and engage them. Yes. Or, and a, now, lot of, or a lot of times what we used to do with that is they'd be, okay, shoot through the wall. Just because sometimes you couldn't shoot from the side. You know, sometimes they box in an area and the only way you can get it is from that port. So at that point in time, we would already, usually the match director would say, all right, Jim, just shoot through the wall and just try and get how did you. How did you feel about that? Did you not like that? Did you want to just shoot it like everybody else did? Or did That's you... the thing with me. I don't do anything special for me. I'm right. not going to ask for a lot. If I ask you for something, it's because 
I know I just can't do it safely or it's just not conducive and it's, it's a waste of my time because it's going to take me so long to get to that point. Uh, yeah. So now pretty much though, it's, it's pretty much humorous now with people that I've shot enough an IDP and USPSA because, you know, they know how I am and they know when I'm joking about, Oh, is it a footfall or you get a PE for this one? Or what do you, why does he get to step over the line? You know? And that's the fun about it because it's, I'm not anything other than another shooter with everybody. Love it. So when you say shoot through the wall, are you talking about the walls that have the netting on them? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Not a blind wall, just, right. you know, a netted wall because there's just no other option for that. Or um, I've had the ones where it's, okay, you need to prone. Sure. I can throw my butt out of that wheelchair and prone on the ground. Really easy. The last target. Yeah. Yeah. If that's my last target, I'll do that. But getting back into the chair, it's just not time conducive. But I try, I try to do everything I can, you know. Have you ever done that? Yes. I love it. IDPA, they, a lot of the guys won't give me a PE if I can't do something that somebody else can't. And they have that in their rules. They're like, you know, we might have some older guys that have bad knees. If they can't kneel down to do it and they got to shoot from else, they get a three second penalty. And I'm like, well, why are you penalizing me? I'm like, I really physically can't do a lot of this stuff. Not that I don't choose to because my knees hurt. They're like, sorry, you get the three seconds. So if they, if I think they're going to give me it because I can't do it, oh, I'll do it. So I've, shot, <laughs> I've, I've got on a, a stage where they've had a bed with a nightstand and I've gotten on that. I just did that at one of the IDPA shoots. Uh, I've been in the cars and shot. I've shot through the cars at times and gotten out. I shot from a jet ski, um, shot from inside a boat. And then on last year's uh, IDPA Florida championships, I shot from a toilet. So you're actually self-transferring to and from the wheelchair on some of these stages. Yes. And I did it just because I don't want that penalty. I love now, it. it might even take me over what the three-second penalty would have been. It would have been better for me to take it's it. It's the principle. Right. Yeah. Principle. No. Right. You, yeah. you told me I can't. Oh, I'll do it. Right. I love it. The one that got me <laughs> mad is I shot Space Coast IDPA, and they had a stage where you were shooting, sitting on a bicycle. And they moved the bicycle <laughs> and sat me right there. And I'm like, okay. I'm like, am I getting a PE for this? They're like, well, yeah, unfortunately, yes. I'm like, well, why? Said, well, you didn't get on the bicycle. I said, you didn't give me the opportunity. Right. I said, for that, for that PE, I'll get you to throw my chunky ass up onto that bike. And you'll just have to hand me my gun because I don't have a holster. They're like, well, no, no. And then I had a guy on my squad almost get tossed from the match because he was so mad that they gave me that PE. Right. We're not being able to shoot from the bike. Uh, that would have been me. That would have been yeah. me. So I'm, the guys are usually pretty good. Sometimes, you know, you'll get an SO on IDPA that are, you know, wired tight. And have you what, have you ever thought of having a rig with a holster on it in case a situation like that comes up? Um, I can easily, yeah, because the belt that I'm running for IDPA is just a, a 511 uh, thicker belt with, you know, mag pouch for two mag pouches. So I can easily throw a holster on a one. So that is a good thought. I never thought about just wearing the holster. You can use a leg holster too if you wanted. Like if you just travel yeah. up high weight. Yeah, because you're a former law enforcement. So yeah. Yeah, I think uh, that would be cool to just have the holster on there just in case there is a stage like that. 
That's yeah. where you can't draw from the wheelchair. Yeah, I never thought I even thought about that. that is good. Uh, good. Yeah, because it does. It limits me uh, where that is. And sometimes I've gotten out of the chair and the SO will hold the holster with the gun in it for me. But uh, I have video of some of these. Because this year when I shot uh, that lying position in the bed, uh, you had to sit with your feet up, either lying down or seated. So I sat holding my legs so they wouldn't touch the ground. And then I reached in the drawer. But when I got to shoot the drop turner, I leaned too far and I started falling over. So I just stayed falling and fired off the shot, but didn't get my second shot and just ended up lying on the bed half cocked with my gun. Still <laughs> I got video. So that's that. like the equivalent of us shooting, falling out of position. Right. Yes. Love it. Yeah. So it's, I've, I've been in some situations where it's been fun and do things. So yeah, it's, I, I like to make sure it's fun. And most of the guys down in IDPA, they're like, Hey, well, just let him do what he's going to do. He's safe. Just, you know, mind you, I'm still held to all the rules. I've been DQ'd. I've been DQ'd because of equipment. That was my fault. I was DQ'd. What I disagreed with was a 180 violation after the stage, which I disagreed with. But at that point, you know how that goes. So yeah, you, I know a lot of people are curious. Do you okay. want to tell us your story? Sure. We'll do the short version. The short version is this. Uh, I got called with my two partners on duty one day for a, a disturbance at about a quarter to 11 at night at a duplex. And the neighbors were calling saying, something's not right. There's a disturbance going on in the house. So we arrived and uh, it being an April, Pennsylvania, cold rain kind of day. And we get out and my partner shows up. And then my other partner shows up. So it's me. I have just my, I'm out with the handgun. My other partner has an AR and the other partner is just a handgun. So we went up to the house knowing we only have a front door, back door. And I went to the back, John went to the front and Matt gave us cover from with the AR. Uh, I went to the back door and they slammed the door just as I got up to it. And then I went back to my guy and said, I made contact. Let's come back around here. Well, the door was uh, on a small deck. So it had about four steps going up the deck and then the door. So I didn't really have anywhere to go on that deck, but I had my firearm up trying to get some type of contact inside. What I didn't know is my other partner made contact at the front door and knew that the guy that answered the door, the things weren't right. What we didn't know was two guys had gone to this house for the specific reason of robbing the drug dealer that lived there of his drugs and money but who also lived there was his wife and kids. So that's what made this particularly different in the respect that we didn't know any of this. I knew who lived at the house and knew he was a dealer, but that doesn't make a difference. So, so, so hold on. So the, guy, so the guy that answered the front door was the, was the dealer. And you, you said your partners could tell that he was not right. Something was wrong. It wasn't the dealer. It was one of the suspects. Mm. And, John, and John didn't know that either because they shut the door in his face. So what we didn't know is that they had been at the house. The guy let them in because they claimed that they were the FBI at quarter to 11 at night, which was ridiculous. So we let them in. They take everybody into the basement. They pistol whip the father, beat him. And now we're trying to get them to give him the money and the drugs. So they grab one of the kids and stick a gun in the kid's mouth and say, we're just going to kill your eight-year-old right here. So then she is taken upstairs with one of the suspects and he gets her all the way up to an upstairs bedroom. And 
begins to start his raping of her. Um, pulls her pants on, is kissing all over her. And that's when we actually got there. And he looked out the window and saw us and wasn't able to rape her. So at that point, he took her downstairs and started getting his partner to come up. What are they going to do? They know that we've been to the front door and the back door and they're not getting out. So they said, well, we didn't know this. They said, well, we're going to shoot our way out. Well, I was between them and freedom. So when I got to the back door, what I didn't know is they anticipated somebody being at that door. So when I walked up there, bladed with my gun out, just as I got in front of that door, which was a white steel door, kind of like what's behind me. When I turned around, when I looked at that door and I come up to it, the door opened in and to the right. And all I saw was white door. Then it was a black void. The next thing I saw was a muzzle flash. And that first shot, what I didn't realize was the first shot literally traveled underneath my hand on my gun hand on my right side, went into my mid forearm, the bullet traveled down the length of my forearm and stopped lodging in my elbow. Well, that took my gun from me. So I'm standing there getting shot at, wondering why I'm not shooting back. And I had no idea that I didn't have my gun with me or on me at that time. So that was shot number one. Shots two and three went across the front of my vest and took out my microphone off my vest. They found it 15 feet out into the yard. My vest stopped those two bullets, but then the fourth bullet struck my vest right to the left of uh, my nipple area on that left side. But the vest didn't stop the bullet because it was an inch and three eighths. Yeah, it was from the edge of the vest being only an inch and three eighths. And they tell you in the NIJ standards for vest testing, anything from two inches and less from the edge of a vest cannot be, it doesn't retain the properties of stopping the bullet because it can't dissipate all that force at an edge like that. So the bullet went through which turned out to be a 38 caliber through the vest into my chest, hit a rib, went, changed its direction, went now downward through my left lung, destroying it and across my T11 vertebrae and lodged in my low back right there. There was some type of um, damage to the spinal column. We don't know because the only surgery we did was to save my life, which was the bleeding of the left lung. So they did a thoracotomy and cut me from my mid chest all the way down to my armpit on the left side. The trauma surgeon went in there and said it was just scooping out what was lung and all the blood loss that I had uh, to repair that. So they did they, what they said is a three wedge resection on my left lung, saved what they could, stopped the bleeding and then closed me up. And I've never had any surgery on my back because it didn't need- So the need- bullet is still there. Yeah. So I have fragments coming across the spinal column and then the mass of the bullet in the muscle. So I think that carries on a lot of some of the pain issues I have is probably because of that, but I'm just not real comfortable with someone going in there and picking out all the pieces in my spine. So uh, are they worried about any of that migrating? Not so much, but I do have a pain that's on my left uh, flank at my waist that is movement based anytime i start making big movements with my core it just is a sharp agonizing pain and a spasm and i just have to stop what i'm doing put some pressure to it and fight my way through it so it's probably uh, pushing on a nerve yeah 
So when I was at the door that day, the first shot hit the arm, the two come across the vest. When the fourth one went in, that immediately paralyzed me. And I was at from a standing position to a falling position. Fifth bullet went through my left armpit. As I was falling, I hit the ground. My head hits the spindles of the deck. So that sends me for a loop. With me sitting there on the deck with my back up against it, the suspect came out. And what I thought, I thought he was going to just step over me and finish me. Thankfully, he was running and ran over me out into the yard where my partners gave chase. Well, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't get a breath to breathe. But everything I could get in my power, I just let out and yelled, I'm hit. Well, as my partners had been chasing the guys, Matt spins around with his AR, not knowing who's making this sound, sees me on the deck and just levels off. But thank God he had the flashlight and saw that it was me. But it was hard to see it was me because it's raining, it's dark, and I'm wearing black BDUs. Because we were in more of a tumultuous department, so it was more conducive. And uh, Matt came back with John. Matt, Matt's only about 5'9" probably about 200 pounds. He was slung with an AR, vest, all your duty gear on. He pulled me from the porch, put me over his shoulder and humped me out to the front while John gave cover. And as we, the things you remember is very weird. I remember as he's running us out front of my face, bouncing off his ass because it's just, you know, lugged over his shoulder. So Matt said that uh, when we got out to the front and down a house or two, he placed me on the ground. I said, you dropped me on the ground on my head, which was the second time my head took a hit. He's like, I don't want to hear it. He goes, I got you out of there anyway. So the funny thing was, I didn't know this. I'm kind of loopy. Uh, he says when he put me down and he knelt down, the barrel of his AR went right into the ground, mud caked in the barrel. And so he said, I had to worry about that while he was now tearing my clothes off because he was an EMT as well to get to see what was going to, uh, you know, kind of treat the wound. I didn't feel any pain until he pulled my vest off and grabbed that wound. And that was pain. And I could tell how bad it was because I could really feel how much blood I was losing through that wound. Um, I was close to probably checking out. Um, they were going to fly me, but it was raining so bad that the life flight wouldn't fly. So, they took me by ambulance, which was a 17 minute trip to the trauma, trauma center. That must've been excruciating. It was different. I remember them putting me on the cot and you, you know, all the, the crazy. Yeah. I could hear officers coming. I could hear other cars coming. I could hear all the sirens. I get in the ambulance and I'm still telling him I can't breathe. And he knows that my left lung has collapsed. Now thinking that my right lung is collapsing, they uh, put the needle through my chest to um, counteract the pressure to get the, uh, the air out of the, the area around the lungs. And I could breathe a little bit. But going to the hospital, we had a car pull out in front of the ambulance. Um, so when he avoided that, that knocked the paramedic on top of me, my leg off the cot, pulled one of my IVs out. So they had to then put IOs into my legs where they drilled straight into the bone to put the, um, the IVs in. And then I remember getting to the hospital and pulling me out and talking to the trauma surgeon. And then I remember everything going white. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, does that mean I'm going up? Or <laughs> is it just saying, hey, we're going to go down and see what happens? 
Then I woke up uh, probably about eight hours later, uh, intubated and alive. And then that afternoon I woke up extubated. And that's when, you know, you see your parents and you see your fiance at the time, and you see, you know, everything going on to see the, where your life is now. And at that point, I, I was uh, being kept in the burn unit, locked unit, because they didn't know who shot them. We had never caught them. So I'm still a risk being at the hospital if they're going to purposely come after you. So I was in the burn unit. And let me tell you something. I thought I was in some pain, but when you're in the middle of the night, listening to the poor people around you in an ICU that have been burned, crying in pain, you've, uh, you've learned something. And it, uh, it's interesting interesting you say that given your situation, you know? Yeah, and situation yourself. You know, my my uncle, my uncle actually had been burned when he was younger. He uh, he used to be a chef, and he got burned on the entire right half of his body. And my mother tells me stories about him screaming in the hospital when they were cleaning his wounds. But yeah, it's it's ungodly to hear the screams from people that are Mm -hmm. burned. And uh, I was in that unit for ten days, and then I was in rehab for forty-seven, but for another thirty-seven days. So for just over a, a month, I would I was in the hospital. So. That's kind of what happened. I mean, we got one suspect in about two weeks and another one in about six months. And then we had a trial in the year, the next year. And oddly enough, one was completely acquitted and the other was convicted of everything except the cheating. <laughs> yeah. Something wrong with the system, you know? Juries. That's what's wrong. Now, did they at least roll you on your side when you said you couldn't breathe? So your functioning lung was high and the one with the bleeding was low? Yeah, they were taking care of everything with, like I said, first, you know, getting that needle in the chest. And then it was a whole lot of, let's see what else. Cause I had no idea I had the wound on the right. So they were moving me around everywhere. As for rolling me up on the side, I'm not sure. I was just happy to be in an ambulance. Yeah. Uh, so it was- uh, That's crazy, man. That's a heavy story right there. It was different. You know, I tell people, I-, I uh, I've been fortunate enough to meet some other officers that have been shot. I was also, uh, one of the things I got to do in my life, a friend that I met did a documentary called Heroes Behind the Badge. And the first one we met in viewing it, the producer is a former law enforcement officer. So then when he did the second series, uh, which was uh, Heroes Behind the Badge, Sacrifice and Survival, it's officers that had been killed in line of duty and officers that were injured in stories he did. So he was... I was one of five stories he did in the second series. And uh, that was intense for me going through everything and being filmed and telling the story. But to see the other officers, one officer, Brady, was uh, shot nine times. He was out in uh, Moab, Utah, shot out in the middle of nowhere out there nine times. Literally one bullet stopped up against his spine one bullet went into his heart and his heart actually pushed the bullet back out because it was in the muscle oh. and it really pushed it out and resealed its own hole. Oh Brady, my goodness. Yeah. Brady is what I call a badass. Also one of the officers in Fort I was Worth, just thinking the same thing about you, man. You know, that's kind of what yeah, I right? John out of Fort Worth uh, in his story, he was a motorcycle cop at 60 years old and went to go after this suspect and they went into an auto body yard and when they went to open his truck door he opened it up and this guy was on the floor and started firing at john hit john 
in the groin, chest, and when he put his hand up, it blew off one of his fingers on his left hand, and then he was able to draw and shoot and drop the suspect. But one Whoa. of the jobs, John was shot seven times, one in the eye, lost his eye, lost his finger, and then shot in the groin, and he almost bled out. So yeah, I was in a group of some pretty badass cops. Wow. Yeah, I think I think me and Keita, you know, can both say thank you to you and all the other police officers out there that do what they do, you know. I mean, we I just heard about that. the one recently in New York, you know, that was on yeah. the news. I just heard about it. And I mean, mm -hmm. it's sad, you know, that they, you guys are going out there to do your job and, and that kind of stuff can happen to you. Yeah, the last year and a half to two years has been difficult for all of us, I think, with the pandemic. But I think law enforcement, we've uh, we've been beaten down pretty good and it's not fun. The lack of appreciation with yeah. defunding the police is horrendous. And unfortunately, Keita, you are in the, you're right in the trenches of that right now, unfortunately, with Minnesota. Minneapolis. It's just, uh, unfortunately, you've had the incidences up there that are happening that are just literally putting- insane. It's insane. I think that's the best word yeah. to describe it's it. Putting, it's showing us the, what the civilians, I will say, are capable of. And it's also showing us the capabilities of a police officer that are good and unfortunately the levels of the worst police officers. And that's just what hurts, man. It really does. The lack of gratitude is astounding. So once a year, I put on an event for police officers where they can come to my local range and get training for free just on basic pistol fundamentals, moving around with a gun, shooting on the move, that sort of thing. So That's if awesome. you want to sign up for that, email yeah. me, 180Training at gmail.com. It does take place in Wisconsin. Okay. But anyone is welcome if you're a police officer, a veteran, or a first responder. Yeah. Hey, Jim, have you have you um, gone back to, like, your department that you used to work at, and do you, like, work on training officers now? Like, have you brought USPSA, IDPA into the department at all, or? Uh, the officer that does all of our firearms training in the department, he's doing a real good job with guys right now. Uh, he's doing, it's no longer just stand there and shoot a target in you know, 25 yards. Right. A lot of it now is movement based, you know, get off the X, move left and right. If you're going to reload, you better be moving while you're reloading. You make sure you're getting to cover, you know, if, if at minimum get some concealment, you know, and, and he's doing a lot of that, which is what we need to do because yes. state of Pennsylvania, all you're required to do to keep your certification is a 60 round course. Yeah. Once, once a year. Once a year. Qualification, yeah, yeah, yeah. and I it's mean, not realistic at all. I mean, I know a few cops that do that. It's like I feel like you guys should be working more bill drills and stuff. I mean, when if you have to actually pull your gun out, you're going to be dumping a few rounds. So, like, you know, if you're just shooting one yard or one round, twenty five yards, it's not really telling you anything, and you're not under pressure at all. And it comes down to this: defund the police department. We didn't have enough funds prior to that, right? You know, my department literally would only give me two boxes of ammo a year for practice. Two boxes, so that's hundred rounds. I've always thought about that. To me, that's weird from like a liability point of view from the from the department. Like, don't you think you'd want your officers shooting more so that if they had to pull their gun out, it's not something that's, you know, I mean, I shot 100 rounds last year in six months leading up to my first major, and I felt extremely rusty coming out to my first major. So like how, as a police officer, if that, you know, if your life's going to come down to it, you got to use that firearm. Mm -hmm. How is it fair that you only get 100 rounds to practice with? I mean, that's like you get 11 rounds a month. The greatest thing that we, that I've seen right now that's that's benefiting police department is the body worn camera. We're literally, yeah. we're literally seeing what happens 
in a split second shooting situation where either the officers had to draw from holster or has been out of the holster. And you see, you do see the shortcomings because we're now inducing adrenaline jump. We're introducing, you know, what is the backstop? Where is, you know, what type of firearm are you using against? What are they using? Um, is it a person using a knife? Everything is coming into play all at once. And we're now getting to see the good and the bad of that. And a lot of it is you're going to see uh, the inefficiency of training for law enforcement. And you can have a great AAR and not only have your AAR with your unit, but you can share that with other police officers as well. This is what we saw. This is how we can change this. This is how sure. we can do better. This is what we need. Yes. And that's where I think the, the body-worn cameras came out more as a result of liability, you know, to say, hey, what are law enforcement officers doing good or bad? But we're learning so much more in shooting situations as to, you know, what did that officer have to do? Did the officer mandatorily have to pull that gun that time? Or was it an absolute need that time? And it's, it's not that I won't say it's keeping us accountable because the officers I know were accountable prior to there being a video. It's just, you know, civilians that think we weren't right. know, accountable before. Now, I think there are a lot of instructors out there who do offer free training for police and SWAT and things like that. Sure. I am one of them. Uh, I know Mike Glover does a lot of that as well. And I think at the very least, instructors are offering discounts. Sure. And that's what's needed. I, I can tell you that my hobbies when I was in the police department mirrored what my job was. So my hobbies were firearms. My, my hobbies were training. So even if my department couldn't provide training for me, I was in other police organizations that they offered money to help you go to training. And that's where I went to all my firearms training. If I wasn't you know, doing martial arts on my free time, it was, you know, either working out martial arts, back to the cars or guns. So it was something that would benefit me in my job at some point in time. But I'm the unusual one. There's not many officers that are like that. Most officers get mm -hmm. out of the uniform. It's everything otherwise, which is great. Right. You need something to vent. You need something to take your mind off of doing that job. For me, it was firearms, you know, and other toys, but the firearms I looked at as this is what I carry every day that's going to save my life. Yeah, that's tell us about at. that. Tell us about your concealed carry. This is interesting. Your everyday carry. My everyday carry now is the new um, fanny pack from Galco that you have a pull string. And when you open the top zipper, the gun presents itself and you draw from the holster right there. And I'm learning to use that one. That's what hides the best with me because most people just look at me and they're like, oh, there's a guy in a wheelchair. They're like, oh, poor him or, or whatever they may think. Oh, he's got a fanny pack on. It just sits there in front. They don't know or they even think that, oh, that guy's carrying a gun. Well, guess what? I'm kind of the guy that needs it because I'm not going to be able to run away as fast as you people were, you know, scurrying away from the threat. So I figure at this point, I'll, uh, I'm usually ready to go for that like the bear in the woods thing, Jim, you know, you don't got to be faster than the guy, you know, you just got to be faster than the guy with you, you know, <laughs> roll away. And, and that's usually my goal is to trip up somebody around me so I can get away. But, 
No, I do. I care. I always carried when I was a police officer and I always carry now. And it's just a matter of uh, personal preference. But with what we've seen in the world, you know, it's, it's, it's the weak, you know, the, the people out there doing bad are the ones looking for the weak. It's never, I'm right. going to do the guy that's, well, I, 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 I don't know if I could take him. No, it's always the, you know, the weak. It's now the elderly. And then we've seen it's the Asian hate. We've seen it's anything to that degree that people are unfortunately out there and minding their own business and they're getting attacked. Yep. Right. I think um, being a woman as well, it's, I'm seen as the weak. So it's important Absolutely. for me to carry. Mm-hmm. I don't know about you, Kita. You know, I'm sure people know you. It'd be a little scary. <laughs> <laughs> I will tell you a story for the concealed carry. Right after I was trial, hoping you would. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right after the trial uh, for the guys that one of the ones that shot me, we were in the city of Pittsburgh and I had the following Monday. We were done with the trial on Thursday. Monday, we had to go to family court for something. So me and Chris, we were parked underneath the jail. Well, excuse me, where the Allegheny County Jail is, and that's an old courthouse. So we go in, we leave, and they're walking the street to go to another courthouse. And on that street, they have the bus shelters. So it's middle of summer. We go by the bus shelter, and there's three people sitting there. I noticed a large black man sitting in the corner. And as I go by, I had a police uh, polo shirt on that said Clareton Police in my name. He goes, hey, man, Clareton. I said, yeah, how you doing? It's good to see you out here. I didn't know who he was. I'm just, hey, somebody's acknowledging me. My story had been all over TV this whole summer. But then as we're moving forward, Chris is behind me. She goes, that guy's starting to follow us. What do you mean he's following us? And as he comes around that bus shelter, he goes, oh, yeah, you think you're better than me. I'm like, uh, hey, I'm just doing good, man. He goes, what do you think I'm going to do when I kick your ass? He goes, I'm going to take you out of that chair. I'll kick your ass. I said, Chris, just keep moving forward. He keeps coming. What are you going to do when I knock you out of that chair? So now we're getting to the corner of the street. And I said to Chris, I said, when we go into the street, just get in front of me because I'm going to turn around and I, I have to address this. This was the day I first put my Glock uh, 27 40 caliber in my pocket because I could. I wasn't going into the courthouse where I needed to relinquish my weapon. And I was in the city. Literally, when I got into the middle of the street, I heard him on the corner of the street corner and I spun around, pulled it out of my pocket and had my one hand on the left wheel. And as I got to my stomach area to do the draw, he turned around and walked back. It was that close. And I'm thinking afterwards, I'm like, one, he's about six, five, probably I said about 270. So now I can see the headlines. White police officer in a wheelchair shoots a black man for no reason. And I'm like, wait a minute, no reason. 6'5", 270, I'm in the wheelchair, but it was just right after the trial too. So thank God that went that way. But then when we came back, I had, my chief says to me, he goes, I just called him and said, this is what happened. He goes, you got to make a report. I'm still thinking like a police officer. I'm like, oh, I solved the problem, no big deal. So I made the report. And they took me inside the sheriff's office and said, uh, well, what did he look like? And I just happened to look on the, there's a file folder sitting there on the table. On it was this picture. I said, that's him right there. No way. They're like, what do you mean that's him? I said, that's the guy right there. What had happened is he's out there waiting at the bus stop 
because he's going into court at 145 for his hearing. What I didn't understand was he was there for mental health court. He was not stable and he was going in there for his hearing. So when he went in for his hearing after he did that to me, he walked into the courtroom, flipped the judge off, looked at the next deputy and punched the deputy, took five deputies and two tasers to subdue it in the courtroom. And when I told him he did this to me first, they're like, oh, my God. He ended up getting convicted for four years. But wow. four years. And that happened literally right after the trial I was involved in for my shooting. So, yeah, yeah. That, had, that had to be a little sketchy, you know, to have the mm-hmm. point run out in the street. You know, yeah. it's not something you're used to, especially when you're not, a, you know, you weren't a police officer. Yeah, I'm like, he's so know. lucky he turned around. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Because I'm not, I mean, I literally was, I have, I was only in the chair a year. I hadn't been shooting enough. I haven't shot at all yet, but I just felt something. I just put the gun in my pocket. And thank God I had, because it was, that was probably one of the other closest shooting possible things I was involved in. Mm-hmm. Well, I love it that even after all of this and all of this trauma that you went through, mm-hmm. you still came back to shooting as your hobby, something you love, something you enjoy. Is that empowering for you? It, I didn't realize what it was going to be. I started off first shooting a shotgun and do shooting of sporting clays. And once I did that, in my after three years of being injured, I'm like, okay, I, they're not bothering me. Any. It doesn't bother me. I'm like, okay, I don't. Uh, what I got through was in the first six months after the shooting, I went to a lot of counseling because I was having a lot of the flashbacks. I was having a lot of issues with any loud noise was dropping me right back into that feeling of, hey, I'm getting shot at. Once I got over that, I think it just, for me, I was able to just move on okay, you're in a wheelchair, who cares? You got shot, who cares? You've got to have fun. You've got to show people what life is. You've been given a second opportunity. Why not go back to the passion I had? I mean, it was, it just seemed that's what I needed to do. And once I started shooting and I could see that I could get better and shoot better than I thought I could, yeah, I knew I was back at it. Off the bug. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's one thing that comes out of this podcast. I hope that we can inspire a few people that are in wheelchairs who don't Me know too. if they can shoot to come shoot. Yeah. Me yeah too. Just try it. Yeah. When you're telling your story, I can see the moments where it takes you right back there. Like when you're talking mm-hmm. about the white door, the black void, I can see that you're almost reliving it when you tell the story in certain moments. And thankfully due to the, Uh, victims of violent crime center where I went through for my counseling she's the one the counselor that showed me how to do that she's like look you're going to tell your story she goes but you don't have to be in the story telling it anymore because the first few times I was telling it she would I didn't even notice it she goes stop right now and I said why she goes look at what you're doing I said what I was wrenching my hands so bad and so tightly that they were turning white she said look at your pants you were rubbing your hands into your in your thighs when you were talking to me about this she goes we have to talk about this this way so that when you tell it in the future you're not having it happen to you again it's just a story so once i did that and got the story out having told it how many you know hundreds of times it doesn't have an effect on me you know i've woken up in the middle of the night maybe two or three times screaming over the 11 years now 
just getting thrown back into it. But yeah, mm-hmm. I've been, I've just been fortunate. I, I don't know what gave me that motivation or drive to just say, okay, it, it happened and I don't worry about it. I don't know what it is. I just know that uh, wake up every day, I try and smile and try and enjoy everybody and everything I do. Well, I think you're super inspirational. I know I'm inspired and all these excuses that we make and here you are in a wheelchair getting it done. No excuses. Right. Yeah. Like, man, very That's motivating. Right. Yeah. And I, it's nice to be able to impart something on everyone. And that's what I try and tell people is, look, it's, it will pass. Something's going to pass. Whatever your hardest day is, it's going to pass. And then you deal with it, you know, some way, somehow. There's just too much good stuff out there. Thank you Thank so much you. for coming on the show. Is there anything else you didn't cover that you wanted to talk about? I got some. Yeah. Well, what match you do? do you this year? Do you got, you got, uh, you got anything planned out for 2022? Like, where are you planning on being? Not just yet. Uh, and the only reason I haven't gotten that far is, is the, uh, the wife, she's dealing with some, some mother, her mother has some health issues. So we're getting that ironed out. So hopefully spring, I'm going to get, uh, something on the radar and get a few of the shoots out there. Um, yeah, well, I'll definitely be out there this year. I'm going to be, uh, I don't know if I'm going to make the two gun. Uh, I wanted to start shooting two gun. Uh, but, uh, we'll just stick with the Glock for right now. I'm enjoying that too much. Well, if you can, I, uh, I'm shooting the Western PA sectional. It's a USPSA match, but I actually, where is that? that. Uh, I can look it I, yeah, I'll let you know. Uh, if you go on practice score, you can see it, but I actually okay. the match director to see if we can get you in there. Well, what, absolutely. Because what, because, uh, I shot that. I think three years ago. Yeah. They didn't have it last year. They had it two years ago. Yeah, for sure. Cause it was at, it actually was at my home range. Really? Clarity. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I shot that one. It is. I will tell you, it is going to be at Mullenkamp presented by Mullenkamp. Uh, hold on. Western PA. Huh? It's going to be in Bulger. So it's going to be in Bulger PA. Okay. King road. Um, yeah, that's not bad. It's in PA. July. So. End to end PA is a five hour drive. It's no big deal. Right. Hopefully I'll get into one of those shoots. Yeah. I, uh, yeah, absolutely. I'd love to see you out there, man. I'd love to shoot you, you know? You oh, you know awesome. you will. Yeah. So yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. And thank you. Thank you for coming on and sharing your story. I mean, that was Listen, I'm glad you guys one of my favorite podcasts that we've done so far. So, Thanks. Yeah. yeah, this was awesome. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.